Hi everyone, great to be with you again. My goal in this video is to walk you through Jean-Paul Sartre's existentialism is a humanism. In part, this is so that we can move to Heidegger's letter on humanism with a little bit of background. First of all, you see, my purpose here is to offer a defense of existentialism against several reproaches that have been laid against it. And in the following paragraphs, Sartre mentions the specific reproaches that have been laid against it, namely that it's a kind of quietism, meaning that there's no action, no effective action. It's just the contemplative philosophy. And since contemplation is a luxury, it amounts to a kind of bourgeois philosophy since only the people who don't work, who aren't laborers, have the leisure to sit around and contemplate the deep mysteries of existence and to despair over existence and all of that. So it's been accused of being quietistic. It's been accused of being overly contemplative. It's also being accused of focusing on what is low, sordid, base, and evil versus what is beautiful, charming, and good. So if you have some rough sense of quote-unquote existentialist literature, you might think that it has to do with that seamy underbelly side of life and not with the chipper, joyous, beautiful, well-proportioned, harmonious side of life. And so Sartre says, yes, that is something that we've been accused of. Another reproach leveled against existentialism. So we have the quietism, we have its luxury, its bourgeois nature, that it focuses on what's low base, evil, sordid. We also have that it is based in pure subjectivity of the ego. Some of the critics say that it's an egotistical thinking. It's too subjectivistic. It ignores human solidarity. That's what the communists say, you see. Um, this, say the communists, is because we base our doctrine upon pure subjectivity, upon the Cartesian, I think. And from this position, it's impossible to regain solidarity with other men who exist outside the self. Continuing here with the accusations against existentialism that Sartre is going through, he says, the Christians reproach the existentialists with the claim that they deny the reality and seriousness of human affairs, ignoring God and eternal values. So if you have no God, you have no eternal values, then it seems like what you have is what's strictly voluntary. People do what they want, people do what they like, and somehow life loses its moral gravitas, its seriousness. So it is to these various approaches, Sartre writes, that he endeavors to reply today. Okay, he's going to go against those various criticisms. And in the course of responding to them, we're going to learn something about what Sartre's notion of existentialism is so that later we can compare Heidegger's understanding, which Sartre refers to, but which is not identical. So why do we have the title existentialism is a humanism? Sartre poses the question. He says, many may be surprised at the mention of humanism in this connection, but we shall try to see in what sense we understand it. In any case, we can begin by saying that existentialism, in our sense of the word, is a doctrine that does render human life possible. A doctrine also which affirms that every truth and every action imply both an environment and a human subjectivity. So he started to say, don't worry, we do take account of not just the subject, but his environing world, his surroundings, other people. We do take account of that. And it doesn't culminate in a despairing destruction of human life quite to the contrary it renders human life possible here he's just saying it we don't know yet how it does so 
And when it comes to the evil side of human life, um, Sartre says, no, not at all. In fact, you're going to see that we are not focused on evil. We're focused on freedom, on freedom and responsibility. What you do with that freedom and responsibility, that's a separate question. Now, there's a kind of notion that you have to be focused on beauty, truth, and morality because the true, the good, and the beautiful are eternal values or are universal principles or are something like transcendental horizons of human existence that we must strive for truth, beauty, and um, and morality, the true, the beautiful, and the good. But we're going to see that Sartre denies that there are any a priori principles of the good separately from free human action. And so it doesn't mean that if you reject the good, the true, and the beautiful, you get their opposites, the bad, the false, and the ugly. It means that you are free. What you do with your freedom is a separate question. So he takes a step back next and says, well, look, what is existentialism? What do we mean when we use the phrase? The phrase is used in a popular sense to mean this or that. As he puts it here, it's become fashionable. People cheerfully declare that this musician or that painter is an existentialist. It's so loosely applied to many things that it no longer means anything at all. And yet it can be easily defined. So how does Sartre define it? We're going to see that for Sartre, existentialism consists of the simple formula that existence comes before essence. Existence precedes essence. Clarifies, we must begin from the subjective. Now, our task is to understand, first of all, as you see on the screen, so there are two kinds of existentialists, Christian existentialists and atheistic existentialists. Sartre himself is an atheistic existentialist. He believes that Heidegger also is one, so he lumps himself and Heidegger in this category. And he says what all the existentialists have in common, certainly what the atheistic existentialists have in common, is that they believe existence precedes essence. So let's try to make sense of that. We do it by contrast with the notion of manufacturing or producing something. If you manufacture or produce something, for example, like Sartre mentions, a book or a knife, the artisan has a conception of the thing that he's producing, and he produces in accordance with his conception, as it were with his blueprint or with the idea that he has of what it is that he's producing. So when you are producing an artifact, when you're manufacturing something, when you are creating in this sense, the notion comes before the final product. The blueprint is there even before the house is built. The idea of the knife is present before actually the knife is produced. So, as Sartre says, in this perspective, we view the world from a technical standpoint, techne, art, production, craft, okay? You have the idea of something and then you bring it into being by producing it. And therefore, we can say, as you see on the bottom of the screen, that production precedes essence. Excuse me. Production precedes existence. First the idea, then its implementation. First the blueprint, then the building. You can take that technical standpoint, that perspective of production, of 
the artisan of the creator, and you can use it to think about God as the creator. And if you see God as the creator or God as the artisan, God as the shaper, the manufacturer, and the maker, then you have this implied notion that God creates according to a conception. Therefore, that the conception of man in the mind of God is like the conception of the knife in the mind of the knife maker. The knife maker makes a knife in accordance with his conception, and God makes man in accordance with his conception. Thus, as Sartre writes, each individual man is the realization of a certain conception which dwells in the divine understanding. But if you move from that view to an atheistic view, then you can no longer treat man as being made in accordance with a conception, in accordance with a nature, in accordance with an essence. Man is no longer built on the basis of a blueprint. There is no longer an essence or a nature that precedes man's making. Rather, as Sartre writes, atheistic existentialism declares with greater consistency that if God does not exist, there's at least one being whose existence comes before its essence, a being which exists before it can be defined by any conception of it. That being is man, or as Heidegger has it, the human reality. Now, there's a long story here, but the translation of Dasein as human reality, we'll set that aside and just see what Sartre is saying. Man is existence that precedes its concept, its conception, its essence, its nature, its definition. We mean, he says, elaborating, that man first of all exists, encounters himself, surges up in the world, and defines himself afterwards. If man, as the existentialist sees him, is not definable, it is because, to begin with, he is nothing. No shape, no conception, no nature, no essence, no fixity. He will not be anything until later. And then he will be what he makes of himself. Man is the self-made man. Man is a nothing that is free to fashion himself. So, very important kinds of details here that we have to work through. So first of all, there's no human nature. This is important because there's a dividing line in political thought and philosophical thought and in the history of political philosophy between the view that man does and does not have a nature. Because a classical view that says we do have a nature sees the meaning of political community and the meaning of a human life in the fulfillment of our nature, in the accomplishment of the telos or end of our nature, in the ordered rank of the soul and in the perfection of the highest part of ourselves. But that follows from a view that man has a specific function or that man has a specific nature. Modern and all the more so postmodern teachings that reject man's having a nature, they culminate in a completely different set of prescriptions, different terms of analysis, different emphases, for example, no longer virtue, which is the classical sense of the perfection of our nature or action in accordance with the perfection of our nature, 
but rather terms like we'll see in Sartre, freedom, responsibility, authenticity. Different, completely different. So on this view, there's no human nature. Why? Because there's no God to have a conception of it. Remember, the nature is the blueprint. The blueprint is technical production type metaphor. If there's no producer, there's no creator, there's no maker, there's no blueprint. Man simply is. Not that he simply is what he conceives himself to be. We aren't self-made by our thoughts, certainly not by our thoughts alone, but he is what he wills, what he does, what he acts or executes. And as he conceives himself after already existing, as he wills to be after that leap towards existence. Man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself, Sartre writes, and that is the first principle of existentialism. So once again, very important to grasp that and to grasp what it is not, what it's against, what the alternative is. Man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. That's the first principle of existentialism. And this is what people call its subjectivity, using the word as a reproach against us. So someone says, existentialism is overly subjective. In what sense? It makes man the subject, the measure of who he is and what he is in himself. It puts all the burden of existence on the person, on the subject. There's no overarching a ceiling or umbrella or roof to man's existence that provides him with something to strive for and that shapes his world. You know, there's no God. It's just man and his free choices. And so you can say that that is a kind of subjectivity. Uh, we're going to see that Sartre does respond to that. He acknowledges the subjectivism of existentialism, but he says more about it than the critics do. Man is indeed a project which possesses a subjective life. Man is not like a fungus or a cauliflower. Okay, a fungus and a cauliflower, they cannot freely choose for themselves what they're going to be in this world. Man can freely choose for himself what he's going to be in this world. If we wanted to use some Heideggerian language to try to get a sense of this, fungus, cauliflower, moss, stone, or my favorite examples, cup, camera, book, pen, you know, those are beings that have the character of inner worldly beings whose being consists of like, what we do with them, how we put them to use. But we ourselves have a different kind of being, to use the term that Heidegger uses in being in time. We have a different kind of being or way of being or mode of being. We are not just among the beings. We are, like Sartre said here, somehow rooted in nothing. Not, you know, and therefore can freely choose. Again, the fungus cannot freely choose, but man can freely choose on this view. So in that sense, our ability to choose freely, our ability not to be constrained in the same way that like fungus or a rock is constrained, that has to do with our subjectivity. Not everything that is possesses subjective life. So man has this subjective freedom and on the basis of that freedom, he can project the self. He can shape, fashion, form, define, create the self. Man will only attain existence when he is what he purposes to be. We set that. 
according to Sartre. But our purposing is not the same as our wishing. So let's try to get this distinction now. What we usually understand by wishing or willing, like I wish for this to happen, is a conscious decision taken much more often than not after we have made ourselves what we are. So here's an example, like everything is open to me. Then I decide to become a soccer player. And then I wish or I will or I want that I win the championship. But it's on the basis of the constituted identity of the soccer player that I now wish, want, and will to win the championship. So the wish, want, will type thing, okay, the wishing, the wanting, it can be drawn back to or traced back to a constituted identity. But that constituted identity, we trace it even further back. And that's where you have the free purpose. So that's what he's trying to distinguish here for us. Don't confuse what you want, which could be a function of your constituted identity, with what with the making of your constituted identity. Two qualitatively different acts, levels, realms, dimensions. Okay? Uh, as he puts it here, giving his example, I may wish to join a party, to write a book, or to marry, but in such a case, what is usually called my will is probably a manifestation of a prior and more spontaneous decision. So we have the implied invitation here as we read Sartre. Look at yourselves, look at your wants, look at your wills, look at your desires, and try to see whether you can trace them back to a prior and more spontaneous decision about who you are. If, however, it's true that existence is prior to essence, man is responsible for what he is. You weren't just born that way. You don't just have your temperament, your characteristics, your astrological sign, your innate proclivities. Yeah, you have maybe to some extent more likely to do this than that. But underneath it all, underneath it all, you are responsible for what you are. You are responsible for what you are, according to Sartre. Is society responsible for what you are? Is God responsible for what you are? Are your parents responsible for what you are? No, you are responsible for what you are. Thus, the first effect of existentialism is that it puts every man in possession of himself as he is and places the entire responsibility for his existence squarely upon his own shoulders. And when we say that man is responsible for himself, now we move from the criticism that existentialism is merely a subjectivism that excludes the rest of the community. That's what we're going to see in a second. When we say that man is responsible for himself, we do not mean that he's responsible only for his own individuality, but, crucially here for Sartre, that he's responsible for all men. All men. So what does subjectivism mean? Subjectivism doesn't mean that you're locked into your personal ego only, like a sort of solipsism. You collapse in on yourself like a black hole. Subjectivism means, rather, that man cannot pass beyond human subjectivity. You can't transcend man towards God. You can never get beyond human subjectivity. But human subjectivity is a human intersubjectivity. Man with men, people with people, humans with humans, 
Not humans and gods, not humans, angels, and demons, just humans and humans. But bearing the burden of their free decisions. When we say that man chooses himself, we do mean that every one of us must choose himself. But we also mean, another next point here in Sartre's presentation, that in choosing for himself, he chooses all men. So in other words, you're going to see the exposition here. But what Sartre is saying is that when you make a decision for yourself, when you make a decision about what you are, who you are, your decision signifies or symbols, uh, symbolizes the image of man as you want him to be. So you don't just become man according to your own making. You make the image of man in your image somehow. So every subjective decision you make about yourself reflects what you think man as such should be. I'm thus responsible for myself and for all men, and I'm creating a certain image of man as I would have him to be, Sartre writes. In fashioning myself, I fashion man. Okay, so this is contestable. I think you may wonder, well, why isn't that the case? Maybe everyone's just free to choose for themselves and what they choose is only for themselves. But that's not Heidegger's, excuse me, that's not Sartre's view of what existentialism is. And maybe when we see his view, we can see the sense in which he thinks existentialism is a humanism. When you make a free decision for yourself about what matters and about your identity, about your project, your purpose, your place in the world, about what matters, you commit yourself and in principle, all of mankind to that view. Okay, and he gives his various examples here. When you decide to marry and have children, quote, I am not thereby committing only myself, but humanity as a whole to the practice of monogamy. I am thus responsible for myself and for all men. All right, I think that you could consider that point and possibly wonder whether it follows or doesn't follow. But here we don't really have the argument behind it. We just have Sartre telling us that it's a feature of existentialism as he understands it. So now he turns to the consideration of some terms, terms that are associated with existentialism, but that aren't properly understood by the people who use them, in his view. Terms like anguish, abandonment, and despair. You know, the existentialist's angst, anxiety, anguish, despair the weight and burden of being exposed to the responsibilities of penetrating insight into the nihilistic configuration of the world, that there is no God. Okay, these kind of heavy, dark, gloomy, melancholy, or as he puts it, grandiloquent type phrases, he says, it's very simple, actually. We can understand them quite clearly. So we have anguish, abandonment, and despair. What is anguish? Anguish refers to the fact that man has complete and profound responsibility, that there's no higher command. There's no Supreme Court to appeal to above your own decision. Okay, Man is in anguish. When a man commits himself fully to anything, realizing he's not only choosing what he will be, but at the same time legislating for the whole of mankind, there's no escape from the sense of complete and profound responsibility. Nobody can help you. Nobody can answer for you. Nobody can do it for you. Your 
faced with a problem or a situation that only you can resolve. And the name for that situation, according to Sartre, is anguish. Anguish. You have to bear the burden of your responsibility, bear the burden of your decision. Who can prove, he asks, that I'm the proper person to impose by my own choice, my conception of man upon mankind? Answer, nobody can prove it. You won't find a proof. There's no sign to convince you of it. And if there was a sign, there would be no one to convince you that that sign is truly a sign. If a voice speaks to me, it is still I myself who must decide whether the voice is or is not that of an angel. You see? There's no proof. There's no guarantee. Nevertheless, we are obliged at every instant to perform actions which are examples. So you have the necessity minus the guarantee. And there's anguish as a result. Anguish that does not culminate in inaction, does not culminate in quietism. It's just the anguish of taking responsibility for your life and thereby for the life of mankind. Abandonment. What is abandonment? Abandonment means no God, no a priori good, no final rules, no calculation that can get you through decision, ultimately. And he gives here the example. Example of a student. Let's scroll down here to the example. Example of a student who, I won't read you all of the details, but long story short, he has a choice. His choice is to go to war or to stay with a family member who's sick and to help her to live. He fully realized that this woman lived only for him and that his disappearance or perhaps his death would plunge her into despair. So if he leaves the family member, if he leaves his mother, could be the end of her. He also realized that concretely and in fact, every action he performed on his mother's behalf would be sure of effect in the sense of aiding her to live. So if he stays with his mother, she'll live. She'll have meaning, purpose, and all of that. Whereas anything he did in order to go and fight, if he goes off to war, that would be an ambiguous action, which might vanish like water into sand and serve no purpose. So he's an option. Go to war, fight for the country, stay at home, take care of his mom. He knows if he stays at home, he can benefit his mom. And he knows that if he doesn't stay at home, it's going to be hard for her. He doesn't know that if he goes off to war, he's definitely going to help the war effort. So he's got to balance out in the concrete situation, kind of the certainties. And as a result of all of this, he finds himself confronted by two very different modes of action. The one concrete and immediate, but directed only towards one individual. Do I help my mom here and now? And the other, an action addressed to an end infinitely greater, a national collectivity, but for that reason, ambiguous and also no guarantee, right? Maybe you go to war and on the very first, <laughs> very first training exercise, you die. At the same time, he was hesitating between two kinds of morality. On the one side, the morality of sympathy, of personal devotion, and on the other side, a morality of wider scope, but of more debatable validity. He had to choose between these two. And what could help him choose? You see, here's the problem. What can he appeal to? Where's the key to unlock the door of this decision? 
Could the Christian doctrine help him? No. The Christian doctrine says, act with charity, love your neighbor, deny yourself for others, choose the way which is hardest, and so forth. But which is the harder road? To whom does one owe the more brotherly love, the patriot or the mother? Which is the more useful aim? The general one of fighting in and for the whole community? Or the precise aim of helping one particular person to live? Who can give an answer to that a priori? What rule book of morals and ethics can answer the question for you? Should I stay with my mother or should I go off to the war? You don't get it in Kantian ethics. You don't get it in biblical ethics, in Christian ethics. According to Sartre, this is just the abandonment. You are abandoned and left to your own devices here to decide. Okay, they go together. You can see abandonment and anguish. So that's the situation. That's the example that he gives, and you have to think it through. And if you do consult somebody, Sartre continues, if you do seek counsel from a priest, for example, you've selected that priest, then at bottom, you already knew more or less what he would advise. You know, have you ever had to make a decision? You need to ask one of your friends, but you kind of already know what they're going to say, and you ask them just to get confirmation of what you already know they're going to say. It's not really that you're looking for their counsel. You pick the ones who are going to tell you, sort of confirm for you what you already know there is to do or what you already recognize you have to do. That's the kind of thing Sartre is talking about here. If you're Christian, maybe you consult a priest, but what kind of priest will you consult? A priest that you already know in advance is a war resistor. A priest that you already know in advance sees war as the highest good. No rule of general morality can show you what you ought to do. No signs are vouchsafed in this world. All right? Think about that. That's the example of abandonment. The man must choose. He can't make his way out in any way. Okay? We ourselves decide our being. He bears the entire responsibility. And as I said, there's a connection. And as Sartre says, with this abandonment goes anguish. Okay? Now we have despair. Despair means that you're limited to what is within your will. This is all, they're all related, as you see. He's just clarifying, you know, these words that seem like in some context they're used, however they're used, what do they actually mean here? Despair, the meaning is very simple. We limit ourselves to a reliance upon that which is within our wills. In other words, you despair of finding answers outside yourself. You despair of finding answers in the heavens. You despair of finding answers in the cards. You despair of finding answers outside of your will or outside of what your will could reach. And beyond the point at which your will can reach, quote, I ought to disinterest myself, for there is no God and no prevenient design which can adapt the world and all its possibilities to my will. Act without hope, hope of some external factor. Okay, act without hope of some external factor. So, now, Sartre has walked us through a little bit about the key words, key ideas of existentialism, of atheistic existentialism. We're faced with somehow insurmountable challenges. Do we deal with what's concrete and immediate or with some prospect that maybe will only play itself out when we're dead? Well, we don't know. You don't know. It doesn't mean you don't act. The fact that you don't know doesn't mean you don't act. I ought to commit myself and then act my commitment according to the time-honored formula that one need not hope 
in order to undertake one's work. Just because you can't say through some sort of scientific formula or some sort of ethical rule book, should I do A or B, doesn't mean you do nothing. You just do. And then you live with your decision. I only know that whatever may be in my power to make it so I shall do. Beyond that, I can count upon nothing. We have control over what we choose and over what we implement. And that's where our focus should be. In other words, if you remember at the start, Sartre said, some people accuse of us quiet. Some people accuse us of quietism, of contemplation, of not acting, of just thinking, thinking about existence, uh, getting out of decision making altogether. Because if there's no rule book, etc., maybe you don't act. He says, no, not at all. For the existentialist, everything rests in the deeds, in our implementation, in our execution, in our making. It's not a doctrine of what's potential. It's a doctrine of what's done. There is no genius other than that which is expressed in works of art. The genius of Proust is the totality of the works of Proust. The genius of Racine is the series of his trage tragedies outside of which there is nothing. It doesn't matter what someone could have done or would have done or might have done or had it in him to do. What matters is what he did. What matters is what he does. You are nothing else but what you live. Okay. In other words, as you see him clarifying here at the bottom of the paragraph, a man is no other than a series of undertakings. That he is the sum, the organization, the set of relations that constitute these undertakings. So, so far from being a quietism, it's a philosophy of action. What about its pessimism? Is it all about, you know, the more ordinary version of despair, hopelessness, everything's terrible, might as well go kill yourself? No. He says, what people reproach us with is not, after all, our pessimism, but the sternness of our optimism. If you are what you make of yourself, then you're not bound by or stuck to or condemned to a bad fate. You're not trapped by your temperament or by your circumstances. In all respects, you are always in principle free. That is a kind of optimism because you're free to make yourself, to give up what's not working, to take on what's better or an improvement or what you want or what would improve your life. In other words, atheistic existentialism for Sartre is an optimistic view of what's possible for man as a free being who takes responsibility for his own existence onto his shoulders and acts for himself and for all mankind. Absolutely not a pessimistic view inherently. Okay? So now he turns from having responded to the pessimism argument, from having responded to the quietism argument, from having responded to the evil or base type argument. Now he turns to the subjectivity. We've already said a little bit about it. We said that we don't have reliance on anything other than ourselves and that when we choose for ourselves, we also choose as a model for man. That's, that's there. But there are some other things in this section that I think are nice and I just want to cover with you. They're also important for understanding the difference between Sartre and Heidegger. Because, for example, Sartre and Heidegger certainly have a different attitude towards Descartes. So here we see that Sartre says, 
we want to base our teaching upon the truth. Atheistic existentialism is interested in the truth. It's not a kind of Nietzschean rejection of the truth for the sake of what we can artistically make of our lives. This is not an exposition on Nietzsche. I'm mentioning that in passing. It's not a rejection of the truth. We seek to base our teaching upon the truth. He wants atheistic existentialism to be well-founded. What is the foundation? What is the truth that lies at the heart of atheistic existentialism? According to Sartre's presentation, I think, therefore I am. The absolute truth of consciousness as it attains to itself. Every theory which begins with man outside this moment of self-attainment is a theory which suppresses the truth. For outside of the Cartesian cogito, this Cartesian self-consciousness, all objects are no more than probable, and any doctrine of probabilities which is not attached to a truth will crumble into nothing. In order to define the probable, one must possess the true. Before there can be any truth whatever, there must be an absolute truth, and there is such a truth which is simple, easily attained, and within the reach of everybody. It consists in one's immediate sense of oneself. Now, of all of the passages that we've seen so far in this particular essay, or this particular lecture, probably this is the one where we could, if we wanted to, really zero in and say, aha, Sartre takes Descartes, Heidegger does not. Sartre goes to consciousness, Heidegger does not. Sartre has a specific notion of truth here, but Heidegger writes about the essence of truth in a completely different way. And we would start to build on the basis of this passage in particular, I think, the radical disjunction between Sartre and existentialism and Heidegger's thought. But let's continue first in Sartre's exposition. And again, we'll save the Heidegger for his lecture on humanism in a separate video. So atheistic existentialism is founded on the truth of Cartesian self-consciousness. In the second place, this theory alone, Descartes, is compatible with the dignity of man. It's the only one which does not make man into an object. We don't treat man as a material being. We don't treat man in the same series of things as cup, camera, phone, pen, paper, fungus. All kinds of materialism lead one to treat every man, including oneself, as an object. That is, as a set of predetermined relations in no way different from the patterns of qualities and phenomena which constitute a table or a chair or a stone. But existentialism is a humanism. We want to see what's distinctly so about the human case, that the human is not just an object like everything else. And for Sartre, that consists of our subjectivity, our self-consciousness in the, in the Cartesian sense. Okay? Very important, because Heidegger's answer is completely different. Not unrelated, but completely different. Remember, our self-consciousness carries with it a consciousness of others. In some sense, we have here a Husserlian twist, if you've ever had a chance to study Husserl's transcendental intersubjectivity. Don't need to go there, but a Husserlian twist because our subjectivity brings with it cognizance of, consciousness of, the subjectivity of other humans. Therefore, we find ourselves in a world of intersubjectivity, not of a solipsism. It is in this world that man has to decide what he is and what others are. Now, we have a shift here in the argument. 
This is another important point to bring out. There's no human nature as we saw. There's no human essence as we saw because there's no human maker besides the human. And yet, even though there's no universal essence that can be called the human nature, there's nevertheless a human universality of condition. Condition. Not nature, but condition. Let's try to see whether we can understand this. Let's see what Sartre has to say about this. What never vary whether you're a slave in a pagan society or whether you're a feudal baron or whether you're a proletarian are the necessities of being in the world, of having to labor and to die there. These limitations are neither subjective nor objective. Rather, there's both a subjective and objective aspect to them. Objective because we meet with them everywhere and they're everywhere recognizable. Everybody works, everybody dies. And subjective because they're lived and are nothing if man does not live them, if he doesn't freely determine himself and existence in relation to them. Everybody dies. How do you conduct yourself towards your mortality? Everybody works. How do you conduct yourself towards your labor, towards your need? And diverse though man's purpose may be, at least none of them is wholly foreign to me, since every human purpose presents itself as an attempt either to surpass these limitations or to widen them or to deny or to accommodate oneself to them. So in principle, you understand, you do, the range of human possibilities because they're all answers to not our nature, but our condition that we must work and that we must die. And you too must work and you too must die. And therefore, in principle, you too have access to the various ways in which man accommodates himself to those limitations, accommodates himself to those necessities. Every purpose, even that of a Chinese, an Indian, or a Negro, can be understood by a European. To say it can be understood means that the European of 1945 may be striving out of a certain situation towards the same limitations in the same way. Okay, nothing human is alien to me. You should be able to find resonance with ancient Greece and medieval Arabia and modern America and here, there, and everywhere. Not because of a human nature, but because of the human condition. Make of that what you will. Okay, that's what Sartre is saying. So we can say there's a human universality, but it's not something given. It's being perpetually made. Now, there's an interesting overlap here. I'm not saying it's a one-to-one -one correspondence, but it's a family resemblance. In Leo Strauss's notion, he has this interpretation of the ideas in Plato. I won't get into the details, but I want to tell you this, which says there's no universal answer to the problem of the best life or to the problem of the best political community or to the problem of the nature of existence and the meaning of being. But what there is and what allows us to dispense with historical relativism or with the idea that you can only know something with reference to your particular time and place, what Strauss says is that the fundamental issues, the fundamental questions are the same. And that allows us to turn to Plato and Aristotle, even though they lived a long time before we did. And it allows us to see that they raised the same questions. How should I live? What is justice? What is happiness? 
So the fundamental issues, the fundamental questions, the basic conditions are the same, even if the answers vary. And as Sartre says, if we turn our attention to that universality, then nothing human is alien to us. Okay. The absoluteness of the act of choice does not alter the relativity of each epoch. So you have to see how these two things work together. On one hand, maybe each epoch answers the questions differently. But on the other hand, every epoch has the universality being faced with the necessity of choosing how to navigate the necessities of their situation, in particular their death, in particular the need to work. Okay, What is at the very heart and center of existentialism is the absolute character of the free commitment by which every man realizes himself in realizing a type of humanity. A commitment always understandable, no matter to whom, in no matter what epoch. Okay, we transcend our time and place with this problem, so to speak. Always understandable, no matter to whom, in no matter what epoch. And the bearing of this free commitment upon the relativity of the cultural pattern which may result from such an absolute commitment. One must observe equally the relativity of Cartesianism and the absolute character of the Cartesian commitment. So we have a balance here between relativity and universality, between the free commitment and between the various ways in which it's realized. There's no difference the way that Sartre puts it here between being as an absolute, temporally localized in history, and universally intelligible being. We get access to human universality at the same time as we reject human nature and the human essence. Okay, good. So let's go on a little bit further because the people who talk about existentialism's subjectivism, they say, since you have no principles, you can't judge. Your choices are arbitrary. Maybe I choose cannibalism. Maybe I choose to be a psycho murderer. If there are no principles, if there's no God, if everything's permitted, then what do you do? So the criti criticisms of uh, existentialism, they go there. They go there. They say that. Everything, um, everything's on the table if there's no God. Everything's on the table if there are no rules. And Sartre says that these are not serious objections because, first of all, you always choose, that's right, and in choosing, you commit yourself to the whole of humanity, that's right. Moreover, moreover, you choose in a way that the criteria somehow arise together with the choice. So there's no blueprint, there's no pre-established value, there's no a priori good, and yet there's a kind of Authenticity, responsibility, coherence, and other types of things that arise together in the choosing. So the example that he gives, and he qualifies this example, he says, don't collapse the example into, you know, don't, he says, the example only goes so far, okay? But an artist, for example, an artist who's painting, he doesn't necessarily follow a programmatic rule set a priori. Does one ever ask what is the picture that he ought to paint? As everyone knows, there's no predefined picture for him to make. The artist applies himself to the composition of a picture, and the picture that ought to be made is precisely that which he will have made. There are no aesthetic values a priori, but there are values which will appear in due course in the coherence of the picture, 
in the relation between the will to create and the finished work. No one can tell what the painting of tomorrow will be like. One cannot judge a painting until it's done. What has that to do with morality? We're in the same creative situation. So it's not that the work of art is identical with the moral act, but both of them have to do with creation and invention. You can't decide a priori what is to be done. In other words, it's not a complete free-for-all, even though there are no rules. Just like painting is not a complete free-for-all, even though you don't know exactly at the outset what you must paint or how you must paint it. We define man in relation to his commitments, and therefore the choice is not arbitrary, but somehow it shapes itself in the making. The second criticism was that you're unable to judge others. Okay, you're unable to judge others. The first one to repeat was that somehow it's arbitrary. There's no criteria. He says, no, there are criteria. They're just not pre-given. They arise in the doing. And they arise in the choosing. Well, what about the judging? No, you can judge. So <laughs> I won't read you everything that Sartre says about this. But ultimately, you can judge. But you don't judge, again, in terms of the pre-given morality. You judge in terms of the truth freedom, responsibility, authenticity of your decision. Because when one chooses in view of others, one chooses, as how sorry, here puts it here, one chooses in view of others, and in view of others, one chooses himself. And one can judge that in certain cases, choice is founded upon an error and others upon the truth. So we saw it even with existentialism. Existentialism is a free choice to take self-consciousness as the basis of the theory. It, we could judge. Well, we judge that it tries to be based upon the truth. So it does take orientation towards the truth as a good thing. One can judge or as something that you can judge about anyway. One can judge a man by saying that he deceives himself. So we have an implicit criterion here that it's better not to deceive yourself, that it's better to be based on the truth. Again, you can make a contrast here with Nietzsche. Since we have defined the situation of man as one of free choice, without excuse and without help, any man who takes refuge behind the excuse of his passions is a self-deceiver. You can judge somebody for disburdening himself of the responsibility of choosing. I reply, he says, that it's not for me to judge him morally, but I define his self-deception as an error. Here, one cannot avoid pronouncing a judgment of truth. So at least Sartre here is clear that we don't get to freely choose what's true and not true somehow. When we judge, we judge, you know, it's better to act on the basis of authentic, free responsibility oriented and based on the truth than it is to act in self-deception, false consciousness, inauthenticity, and all of that. Error, falsehood. It's better to know and to act with knowledge about man's complete liberty of commitment. Better than to deceive oneself. Better than to be in contradiction with oneself. Okay. And moreover, you can judge morally, but the moral judgment has to do with freedom. I declare that freedom in respect of concrete circumstances can have no other end and aim but itself. And when once a man has seen that values depend upon himself, in that state of forsakenness, he can will only one thing, and that is freedom as the foundation of all values. So something I haven't pointed out, 
but a few times in this presentation, Sartre says that he doesn't want men to fall into fascism. Now, he says a couple of things, okay? But one of the things he says, he doesn't want people to fall into fascism. And fascism would be a kind of infringement on the view that man is fundamentally characterized by his freedom, that his existence precedes his essence. Okay, so what did we just say? We said it's not true that we can no longer judge. We have criteria for judgment. It's also not true that the choice is totally arbitrary. It can be free, but not totally arbitrary. So finally, as we go through this essay, we have a third objection. The third objection is that what you choose isn't serious. It's trivial. You've chosen something. Your values are not serious. Like, why didn't you choose the eternal law of God? You haven't chosen something of transcendental gravity, weight, substance. You just chose maybe what you like or something like that. Uh, well, Sartre says, no, that's not right. It is true that we've rejected God the Father. It is true that therefore values must be invented. That is the case. And there's no sense in denying it. And there's no sense in diminishing it. To say that we invent values means neither more nor less than this. There's no sense in life a priori. You could say, what is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is what you make of it. Life is nothing until it is lived, but it is yours to make sense of. And the value of it is nothing else but the sense that you choose. Therefore, you can see there is a possibility of creating human community. Because you can choose to make human community. And the next part here, I just want to say in passing so that it's clear and we don't cut the corner, is that Sartre says, I've been reproached for calling existentialism a humanism. A humanism does not mean that man is the best being. That man is the highest being. That man is an end in itself and the supreme value. Because there's no perspective outside of man from which you could judge man's place in the whole. That would be a cult of humanity. And the cult of humanity ends in fascism. Man is not the highest being. You don't know. What you do know is that you can't get beyond man. You don't have a perspective from which to look. You don't have a God's eye view. You don't even have a bird's eye view. You just have man's perspective on man. So in that sense, it's a humanism. But man, and this is crucial. And there is something here about Heidegger that you should think about. But I'm going to try to just put this in Sartre's words. We're not locked in ourselves. There's a self-transcendence. There's a self-projection. There's a being outside of ourselves. But in being outside of ourselves, we're not outside of man. Okay, there's a sense of the word of which uh, uh, humanism, of which the fundamental meaning is this. Man is all the time outside of himself. It is in projecting. That's a Heideggerian notion in another context. Projecting and losing himself beyond himself that he makes man to exist. We're out in the world, but we're out in the world of man. And on the other hand, it is by pursuing transcendent aims, the ones that you choose, the ones that you make, the ones that you commit yourselves to, that he's able to exist. So we're always out ahead of ourselves. Man is self-surpassing. And he himself is therefore at the heart and center of his transcendence. You don't surpass yourself and leave man behind. You surpass yourself 
into a more rich human universe. There is no other universe except the human universe, the universe of human subjectivity. You could say you transcend your subjectivity in the direction of intersubjectivity, but not more. This relation of transcendence as constitutive of man, not only in the sense, excuse me, not in the sense that God is transcendent, but in the sense of a self-surpassing with subjectivity, it is this that we call existential humanism, okay? So now we've come to sort of the culminating point here. Existentialism is a humanism. What is existentialism? Existence precedes essence. Sartre's existentialism is atheistic. No God, no a priori good, no moral playbook. He's overcome some objections, and he's left us here with the meaning of existentialism's humanism. There's no legislator but man. Man is abandoned to man. Man decides for man. And man seeks his freedom as man. Man can realize himself as truly human in that way. It's not an animalism because we're not just animals. It's not an objectivism because we're not objects. And it's not a theologism because there's no God. Let's just read this last paragraph together. You can see from these few reflections that nothing could be more unjust than the objections people raise against us. Existentialism is nothing else but an attempt to draw the full conclusions from a consistently atheistic position. Its intention is not in the least that of plunging men into despair. And if by despair one means, as the Christians do, any attitude of unbelief, the despair of the existentialists is something different. It's not a hopelessness in the sense that all is lost. Existentialism is not atheist in the sense that it would exhaust itself in demonstrations of the non-existence of God. It declares rather that even if God existed, that would make no difference from its point of view. Not that we believe God does exist, but we think, he says, speaking of the atheistic existential humanists, we think that the real problem is not that of his existence. What man needs is to find himself again, not leaving ourselves behind. We need to find ourselves again and to understand that nothing can save him from himself, not even a valid proof of the existence of God. So look what he's saying. Yes, we believe there's no God, but even if there were a God, even if we had a proof of the existence of God, that doesn't save you from yourself. In this sense, existentialism is optimistic. It's a doctrine of action, and it's only by self-deception, by confining their own despair with ours, that Christians can describe us as without hope. So that was Jean-Paul Sartre's essay, originally given as a lecture, called Existentialism is a Humanism, 1946. And in a subsequent video, we'll turn to Martin Heidegger's letter on humanism and see whether we can make sense of a different way of understanding humanism, Heidegger, and the problem of man, of our place in the world, of our freedom, and all the issues that Sartre has raised. I hope you got some value out of this video. Thank you for watching. See you in the next one.